0: My name is Mark Solomon, and this is Never Was. I never was a magazine editor, in fact, Never even a journalist. I know. I know. Shocking. Uh, This makes the fact that I'm hosting a podcast kind of ridiculous. But I really don't think anyone cares. So we're just going to keep going. Okay? We're just going. We're going. See, I'm more accustomed to uh, the other side of it, you know. I, I, I get asked the questions and then I give the answers and I try to be... Entertaining or whatever. I'm not used to this other thing. And uh, I'm not super great at it. (laughs) Maybe, maybe someday. But I don't know. I'm not a journalist. So what what do you want from me? Okay. Okay. Tonight's show is a little bit out of left field. I know. I said it last time. Uh, The plan was to to uh, post up the Cell Dweller interview but what have we learned boys and girls about man's plans and God laughing okay what happened the last time I said the next show will be Mike Lewis yeah it didn't happen the truth is the Cell Dweller show is uh, it's having pretty major surgery okay we hope for the best it's a fighter and uh, that's the best we've got what what is Okay, yeah, we will get it done, okay? We will get it done. Um, hopefully next week, I'm not promising anything. Uh, until then, I kind of have a surprise for you. I want to ask you a question. Do you remember the first time you saw Living Sacrifice on a magazine cover? Uh, MXPX? Under Oath? Zayoth. Demon Hunter, Norma Jean, Five Iron Frenzy, P.O.D., or, or back in the Dark Ages, The Crucified. So which was it? Spin, Rolling Stone, you know, Alternative Press, maybe, uh, Revolver, covering, you know, those, those magazines that cover rock and roll and all the rock and roll, right? Because that's what they do, right? Oh, I'm sorry. None of those? Yeah, that's right. None. Now, see, the thing is, I'm betting the first time you saw any of those artists on the cover of a magazine, it was on the cover of HM, uh, once known as Heaven's Metal. That's right. Before there was a MySpace, Friendster, Friendster, before there was Facebook, before there was the Facebook uh, 90s Christian Music Recovery page, or the the old school tooth and nail page, before there was any of that, there was HM. I mean, as I was writing this, it, it occurred to me, for years, the only published magazine that covered an entire community of, of bands, I guess. I don't know how you'd say that. I mean, there was metal, there was rock, there was punk, there was hip-hop. There, was Before anyone covered all this music that was made by Christian people, or before you could read about it from, from anything other than a zine, it was only HM. They were the only ones who cared. They were the only ones who cared about the labels who put out the music. They, they were the only ones who cared about the fans who listened to it. Think about what that means. Whatever the market, it doesn't matter, you know. A ton of music, some of it really, really good, was ignored by most printed media. And by default, all media. The fact is, for a long time, if you wanted to read about Zayo or Scatterfew, Tooth and Nail, Five Minute Walk, whatever, you had to get your hands on the latest HM, and that was all there was to it. Maybe, you know, okay, maybe they didn't have the big, huge budget and the glossy covers and circulation into every single store, but man, they did everything they could, you know? And if you're, if you're really fair about it, they did something for, uh, for us, meaning us, the bands, us, the fans, us, the writers, us, the labels, whatever. They did something for us that no one else did. And, uh, the great thing is, is they did it all for the money. Mm. Well, (laughs) they did it all. They did it all for the love of the music. You know, the truth is, is they're. You know what? Let's get into it. My guest can talk. He can tell you why he did it all. Why he created this magazine and, and why he worked at it for so long and so hard for really very little in return. My guest for episode 10. Uh, which is kind of a big deal in and of itself, is uh, the creator and publisher and editor and at times artist and writer and and (laughs) reporter, Doug Van Pelt of uh, HM Magazine. So what do you, what are you doing now? You're working for the Department of Agriculture.
1: Yeah, well, um, I found my way back to the garden somehow. Who knew? <laughs> uh, my first job was working for my uncle's farm in Kansas when I was between eighth and ninth grade. Gosh, into a long story here. My uh, my marriage—I got married uh, 22 years ago, and I had like the quote-unquote perfect marriage. Married a spirit-filled woman. We uh, had our stuff together. Mm-hmm. We uh, taught a marriage class and parenting class. We walked side by side with some other couples and helped them with their marriage. It was like, I had a bulletproof marriage. Okay. Or so I thought. And uh, But what happened was, uh, uh, years and years of my workaholic ways with HM Magazine wounded her over and over again. And uh, that brought her into, I don't know where the story goes from there as far as her. I can only speak for myself, really. But uh, anyway, she decided that, she didn't have very much hope for our marriage, and she what little hope she had was in separation. So she okay. moved out with my two girls, and so in September, I'm sorry, in June of 2011, uh, my wife and two daughters moved out of the house, and uh, before she moved out, my wife gave me a book called How to Win Your Wife Back Before It's Too Late by Gary Smalley, who's like a marriage guru. All right. So I had a game plan, and I spent the next six months trying to fix up this fixer-upper townhouse we bought, trying to find a new job and uh, start paying child support for my kids. Uh, Long story short on that little story, uh, while I was working my tail off, uh, my wife wasn't really working in the same direction. And she filed for divorce six months after the move-out date, which is kind of textbook- and she wanted the divorce to go down 90 days after filing, which was textbook. Mm-hmm. So she wanted she wanted out. And uh, anyway, she kind of looked at HM Magazine as the mistress I had an affair with. You know, there wasn't uh, infidelity there. But as far as she felt like I was devoting too much time to the magazine and, than her and whatnot. And that was her story. So uh, I kind of knew instinctively that I needed to do something with HM Magazine. And I needed a new job. And it didn't help that at the time, from 2008 onward, the music industry, the marketing industry, and the magazine industry, and the economy in the United States were all going downhill. So it was like a three or four forces converging at once, yeah. which made it really hard to make money at a magazine at the time. But uh, So in March of 2013, I uh, went to the courthouse and got the divorce, and I also got a new job at the de- Texas Department of Agriculture. Using my skills to write, edit, and graphic design, which is what I've been doing with the magazine for uh, many number of yeah. years. So, uh, and I also sold HM Magazine. One of my uh, best writers, this guy named David Stagg, he interned with HM in 2003 and quickly became one of my favorite and go to writers that uh, could just turn around stories professionally and uh, knew what he was doing, knew what he was talking about. So he was one of my, my most relied upon writers. And I he was a businessman. He's an entrepreneur in Houston. I said, so hey, do you know anybody that wants to buy a magazine? Just thinking that he could use his business contacts to maybe find somebody that would be a good buyer for me. Mm-hmm. So I'd reached out to like the Guitar World magazine people and CCM. Um, hadn't really found any buyers or much interest. And he goes, what? You want to sell? Let's talk. And so ended it, anyway, he ended up wanting to buy the thing Mm. so the month the month of March 2013 let go of HM Magazine got a new job and had my marriage and a divorce so it was a big month wow man
0: well I'm very sorry to hear that obviously I forgive you it
1: is all your fault
0: I I feel I contributed in some fashion
1: (laughs) yeah I'm glad you're owning up to that you know
0: (laughs) uh, we gotta take we gotta take
1: responsibility for
0: our actions Doug you know it's interesting you brought you brought that up. The uh, how much changed? I mean, obviously, your own life changed, but that, I think that's something that a lot of people don't consider when they're talking about any one element. You know, the economy, the music industry, the recording industry, the journalism industry. Like none of those single things, when 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 addressed as as a single individual thing, it's easy to be like, oh man, you know, print journalism is just it's really fallen and newspapers really fallen or music industry really falling. But no one really talks about the fact that the digital age has begun and killed all those things. You know, it's the Mm -hmm. one it's, they're all connected, including the economy. I mean, how many, you can't have major industries that have been employing people who went to school to learn to do what they do all of a sudden out of work, you know, that's gonna, that's gonna bite you. But you know, we, it's, it's easier to blame the president than it is to, <laughs> to just look at reality, man. It's, 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 you know, the American public is no different than a rock band. They, it's always the label's fault.
1: Yeah. But, uh,
0: <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't say that to diminish what's gone on in your life, but you know, man, I gotta tell you, Doug, it's not, This is not the first time I've heard this, even in the short time I've been doing the show. It's like so many of my Christian brothers um, and sisters have just experienced this tragedy, you know, this divorce tragedy, man. And thank God I am still married, you know, but in all honesty, I don't know that I'm out of the woods yet. It sounds to me like so many people that you get to about 15, 20 years and, you know, Things start changing up, man. I'm, I'm just, I'm sorry to hear that, and I, I hope you have some good brothers around you during that time to kind of keep you put together. You know, I mean, do you have a network around you? You got good, you got some good people. You know,
1: uh, oh yeah, that's what uh, really helped me out a lot. I'm, I'm plugged into a church here in, in Lago Vista, Texas, and I was part of a home group that met midweek. And they were huge, and I had a small circle of friends between about ten and twenty friends that would really help me. Uh, I could—they were like a sounding board and would help me and support me through this. And so I was in a really good place. I mean, I went through some deep, dark suffering. It was horrible. It was hideous. It was like gut wrenching. Mm. There was times when I was, you know, pretty much fetal position on the floor, and moaning mm. like a like a movie. But uh, but I was in a beautiful place at the same time because God. His name is Emmanuel, God with us, and that really proved to be true in my case. And as dark as it was in my spirit inside, you can't fake this stuff. Right? Uh, I was just in a a beautiful place, a place of brokenness. It wasn't happiness and joy and lots of bright colors. It was <laughs> dark and doomy. But uh, but I had uh, it was it was good in my soul. Uh, and part of that's because I, I did have a good structure and a foundation and a group of friends around me that that kind of walked through me. Okay. And you may not remember this, but uh, you're one of a couple friends, Mark. When I was at work, I'm not sure it was March of 2013. It might've been, it was early on in that job. And I sent you a text. I don't know, we were just uh, crossing paths via our cell phones. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned that I had gotten divorced and the phone rings five minutes later and you're calling me <laughs> to say, you know, because, and I really appreciate the fact that you actually gave a shit and uh, you didn't just let that news pass by you. But you picked up the phone, not knowing that I wasn't going to cry on your shoulder for forty-five minutes. You know, that, taking the time to talk to somebody is a risk, mm. and uh, so I just want to thank you for taking that risk, and also just for being one of those friends that uh, is willing to, uh, you know, call you up and just to make sure that uh, you know I wasn't going to fall on, on the wayside. Wow. So thanks for checking up on me, and just you know, actually making a phone call besides just letting a text go. Oh, I really feel sorry for you. Todd. <laughs>
0: I'll tell you, man, I I thank you for uh, saying that. I, you know, the truth is, dude, I just, you know, my heart goes out to you. But I've 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 got some pretty great friends in my life who have done the same for me. You know, when they were able to when it was humanly possible, you know, Um, I mean, if I got them on the show, it'd be the same exact thing. I just, you know. Man, damn it, I, there's so much of this. it just it just breaks my heart, man. but listen, let's uh let's let's shift gears here and 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 maybe we can uh, come at this from a different direction. I mean, you're not kidding uh, 20 how many years in the in the magazine? 22? 28
1: years. 28 years. Doing yeah, a magazine. This year is the 30th anniversary of HM Magazine. That is
0: amazing, man. So nearly three decades, and I mean, we're talking. You predate half the scene. You know? Were you? Um. <laughs> okay, I was just the other day. I was. Uh, I was. I got a, a a letter from my my auntie from uh, Oregon and. I don't know how she came across this, if she bought it when it came out, but there was a big article in uh, Heaven's Metal uh, about the crucified and we were on the cover and, you know, I'm sure she was
1: very proud and she's, you know, issue 32, <laughs> 1991, issue third, you know, the issue. Oh, yeah. S- Did you review that? Come on. No, no, I didn't. Sorry. Wow. I'm unprepared for this interview. Wow, I'm swinging man. from the heart
0: here. Uh, I loved that piece, all those big pictures and stuff. Was, we were so excited to finally get some exposure, you know, and you know, <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. I was, I, I, I crack up when I see it because. You know, we used to make fun of all those metal bands back in the day, and, and they all had their little outfit that they wore, you know, a little matching spandex I bet thing. you did. Uh, in <laughs> fact, uh, the guys and I, we were at uh, like a, an amusement park um, watching. It was like, you know, Knott's Berry Farm or Magic Mountain, someplace in, in in L.A., and it was like a Christian rock night thing or something. And, um, you know, we probably went down to see the Altar Boys, but also to see this this band bloodgood that we had heard about and uh i it was not my thing but uh but greg you know as you well know greg manier was always the metal guy and uh you know he really wanted to see them i remember he had that shirt uh, that shirt his, the bloodgood shirt appeared in multiple uh crucified promo photos and uh <laughs> and uh because we had never heard of them before, we we just kind of heard like a little mention, and we were still looking for that like the like the gnarly, you know, maybe a speed metal band or something that was, uh, you know, in the community and that we, I don't know, that we could kind of get behind. And so we heard about this band, and, and of course, they you know they were not a speed metal band by any means, is you know a substantially different style, but. um we were still kind of in awe, like, dude, these guys are like a rock band, you know. I mean, I, we went to see the Altar Boys, but the first, the very first um, Crucified show ever, or, or the second Crucified show ever, was with the Altar Boys. We that that mystery had been debunked, you know. But still, these these metal yeah. bands, they were so so fascinating. And anyway, the, the point I'm getting at is, we get to the to the show, you know, you can just march all over those those amusement parks and uh Greg saw the the trailer for Bloodgood behind the stage like where where the park had them set up for their little dressing room and all that and he looked inside right as somebody had opened the door and he saw this like clothing rack and these four hangers with their little spandex outfits all put together but also miniature because they're stretchy you know <laughs> dangling from these four uh hangers and he he was so he was so blown away by that, like this seeing this behind the curtain, like <gasps> their superhero outfits or so. I don't know. It just was like I have this picture in my mind of these little tiny miniature, you know, elf clothes hanging from this thing. <laughs> and then, you know, we we had our good laugh about that, but then, you know, fast forward to later and of course Facebook there's pictures, you know, floating around all the time, you know, from press like press releases or whatever, and people drop some old picture that they saw, and we just saw a crucified you know photo and there's Greg in his Elgato t-shirt, right? And mm-hmm. I am positive And I was probably wearing the Raiders t-shirt that I wore every day. And in that magazine that my auntie sent me, there's Greg on stage at Cornerstone with that Elgato t-shirt on. uh, And and me wearing my Raiders gear or whatever. I don't know, man. It just is such a... I've been trying to kind of back off of the nostalgia, but sometimes you just can't help it, you know? I mean, come on, man. That was such a... That episode, that that issue coming out was a big deal for us too, because it was like people are gonna know. They're gonna know, man. They're gonna finally know. You know, I don't know. Very very
1: cool. Very <laughs> fond memories of that time. <laughs> you-, you reminded me of a story that I hadn't thought of in a long forever. But uh, the crucified came to Austin. It must have been 1990 because okay. it was before the cover story, and. I guess you just came to Austin once because my band opened for you, but you, you pulled me backstage. It goes, Doug, I need to talk to you. And you had this look on your face like you were serious. And I was like, what is he going to talk to me about? And I can't remember exactly what you said, but it was like, what is it about us? How come you're not giving us more coverage in your magazine? It's like, there's something, <laughs> have we done something against you? You, you really felt a chip on your shoulder that you weren't getting the love from uh, HM.
0: Took you behind the woodshed. Which shed. was
1: Heaven's Medal at the time. And, uh... And my response was like, No, there's no agenda against you, dude. It'll happen or whatever. Anyway, and then so that's funny that you uh that it meant something to be on the cover because uh <laughs> you you really wanted that. You can say you it. got you it. You deserved it. it. <laughs> <laughs> Damn
0: high maintenance bands thinking they're bigger than their yeah, britches. Prima yep, donna. Yep,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> the writer in the contract must be on the cover. <laughs> Heaven's metal, I will not play. Oh, don't
0: you worry. We're going to get into some of those uh, some of those moments soon enough. Good. I got a couple questions <laughs> for you, my friend. Uh, yeah. Okay. There's there's one thing there. Heaven's metal. You know. Obviously. Oh, what was the other magazine? White Throne magazine back then. Yeah. Um, you know, and those guys gave us all kinds of love. It, again, we were just. You come from Fresno, dude, in Central California. You got a chip on your shoulder anyway. I mean, you, no one acknowledges <laughs> your existence unless you fight for it out there. So, you know, we were just we were just doing our, whatever we had to do to survive. Anyway, uh, you know, uh, I remember the whole, like, Heaven's Metal. And, you know, we, for us, it was like we didn't consider ourselves a metal band. But, you know, hey, man, if these people are going to actually... You know, show us some love. We'll take it, and, and, and happily so. And, you know, Greg and Jim both, and even and Blue, all three of those guys loved them some metal. Uh, I just never was that guy. But uh, when, when there was that switch from Heaven's Metal to HM, that was kind of, I mean, we're talking about a, a pretty major shift in, in the climate of music, you know? Uh, and and for someone going back as far as you do, can you kind of weigh in on that change and and on the, on those changing times? You know,
1: yeah. That's um, thanks for bringing that up. That that was a huge moment for me. It happened at a, it was like perfect symmetry too because it happened in '95, and that was the 10 year anniversary of Heaven's Metal magazine, and so it was a perfect time to put a cap on something and start something new, which was great. Prior to ninety-five, we had started using the subtitle "Your Hard Music Authority" right. because concrete marketing, which I think you know, cornered that uh, phrase, "Hard Music," which encompassed metal, punk, and industrial. Okay. Um, you know the, the edgy music that because metal had become a bad word, and when Nirvana exploded with "Smells Like Teen Spirit" and "Nevermind" album, you know metal died an instantaneous death. Commercial metal. Died an instantaneous right. death. And record companies dismantled their metal division. Radio stations dissolved their metal format. Record stores took their metal sections and took them away. There's no more little tabs that said metal anymore. Wow. So all that happened almost overnight, and the word metal became a bad word. And so the name of my magazine, Heaven's Metal, in a world of selling advertising sure. and courting record labels to, to make a living, you know, metal became a bad word. So... People abbreviate things anyway, and like Australians, they'll abbreviate the word family, they'll call fam, and the university's uni. And so, we were people love to abbreviate, so we were called HM for years. We started using the phrase your hard music authority for a couple years, and so in 1995, um, I changed the name. What's funny is this, this one character who's a kind of a weird character from the past, this guy named Michael Sean Black worked for Frontline okay. Records. Kind of a squirrely character. I was. Uh, I traded some advertising uh, space in Heaven's Metal for studio time at their offices to use their video toaster equipment and their, their setup to do some video editing. Because I started getting into video magazines and doing like a 60-minute rock show documentary style with interviews and segues into a, a video. And Sure. So I was using their facilities late one night and he comes in and he says, Hey, Doug, you should really change your name of your magazine to HM. And inside, I was like, you know, I was pissed off. Really, at, it, at the idea of changing the perfect name, Heaven's Metal. It's like a God-given name for a Christian heavy metal. There couldn't have been a better name <laughs> for a Christian heavy metal magazine than Heaven's Metal. And so, for the, and I kept it all inside. I internalized it because I didn't want to scream at him or cuss at him. But I thought, how could you say that? <laughs> but anyway, the idea obviously gnawed at me, and 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 over time, when that one or two years period where metal, it just was just like a weight around my shoulders. It wasn't helping me as much as it was hurting me. So uh, I'd shortened the name to HM and I had the 10 year anniversary issue in July of 1995. The September, October issue had MXPX on the cover and I had a brand new logo. It had like the, the trendy little oval shape uh-huh. to it. And right above the logo, it said Heaven's Metal. So I had a transition period for the last two issues of '95, where it said "Heaven's Metal" right above the HM logo, until we got into 1996, and it was just HM at the time. So, but I caught a lot of heat. Metalheads felt like I was betraying a genre really? that I was, you know, leaving behind true metal. <laughs> and uh, so we took a lot of heat, but I always, you know, I kind of knew in my gut I was doing the right thing, and you know, heavy metal or whatever you wanted to call it was still going to be around you know, metal kind of went underground thrash and speed metal and grind core and industrial were thriving at the time creatively and pop metal and melodic metal. It was stagnant. Yeah. It was, it was a coming a parody unto itself. It it needed to die. And the, the commercial part of it died a swift <laughs> death. Thanks to uh, a guy named Stuart on Beavis and Butthead. He wore that winger. T-shirt, <laughs> and he was the butt of all their jokes. And so that helped kind of kill metal. It killed a band oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, so that was a tough time, but we, we took a lot of heat. But I kind of knew that you know electric guitars, which is the staple behind this music we call hard music or whatever, is going to be sure. around. There's no, nothing's going to kill it. It just changed names for a while. Well, I got to
0: say, I, first of all, I was glad to see commercial metal die because I hated every second of that <laughs> crap. Uh, that was brutal. And I laughed hard. When Stewart wore that shirt, <laughs> so I got—I felt <laughs> I got that joke nicely. But I also, yeah, I got to hand it to you, man. That was a pretty savvy move because sometimes people don't see that. You know, I talked on a, on an earlier show how a lot of times I don't see the big picture. You know, I thought that was. You know, maybe somebody mocks, maybe somebody feels betrayed or whatever, but I think deep down anybody could see that that, that was an, a necessary move and it ended up playing out pretty well for you because not only did it, did you remove that albatross, but you also opened up the gates, man, for all kinds of different bands who were never going to get a chance to be heard. I mean, or, or, or read about or seen or whatever. I, you know, I mean, look you grow up in in, in our generation you grow up wanting to be on the cover of Rolling Stone you know the residual of that is still there or if you're if you're really feeling kind of you know on the next level you might get on Spin right Uh, uh, Mm -hmm. now those two magazines I mean Spin I don't even know if it still exists and Rolling Stone is essentially a political magazine to this point I I don't know that anybody goes to it for music but you know I think, um, not to say that they aren't. I mean, they're still Rolling Stone, dude. You even put a, do a thing about me in Rolling Stone, I'll flip my lid. But you know what I mean, like, sure. Uh, uh, for for, and this would go for any any uh subgenre or, or I hate to use that word because I don't think it applies, but any community of bands of, of music and any groups of people that are playing you know playing music on on any level they want to they want to have a chance to be heard and i just you know for you to open the doors like that at the end of the day that is exactly what you did and i mean man think about it where where is where is mxpx uh where are their fans going to get to read about them if there is if if heavens metal hasn't made the shift to hm where Seven ball or whatever, any of these magazines that kind of came and went. I don't I don't see it, you know. Um I just thought it was cool. I thought it was a cool move. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah, we had Starflower fifty nine on the cover yeah, for man. crying out loud. That's
0: big, you know?
1: That's and we had a really cool poster of Jason Martin in the tenth anniversary issue of Heaven's Metal. He's just wearing his red t shirt, playing a telecaster, I think. <laughs> just great looking shot.
0: Uh, yeah, man. Good move. So, Okay, so you make the switch. You, you, you feel you feel a little heat. You know, people are giving you some shit for it, and you know, not not sure if you're still down for the team. Um, mm-hmm. And then you got crybaby bands like Stavesacre or, or the Crucified, wondering how come they're not on the cover. Um, but <laughs> it, it, while that's happening, uh, you know, this phenomenon sort of sweeps the nation. You mentioned MXPX, but tooth and nail suddenly comes on the scene. I mean, uh, you're one of the few people who could look back on their, you know, their career in this, in, in this, um, community and, and, and be like, uh, I remember before that, you know, what you, uh, kind of enlighten people. Like how, how did it feel to you when that, when they sort of just tore onto the scene? I mean, I, cause it had to be kind of a mind blower.
1: It was pretty cool. Uh, I remember Brandon Nebel worked for Frontline for a while. In one of my video magazines, I was uh, videotaping Mortification on stage at Cornerstone. I guess Tourniquet let them have about 15 minutes of time. And they came out there and played. And at the end of their Mortification's little five-song set or whatever, you know, the crowd's screaming for more. And Brandon Nebel's going, We want more! His voice is (laughs) cracking. He's screaming right in my camera. I had it right in his face. And uh, that spring of... 94, he approaches me on the telephone and says, Hey, I'd like to buy, I'm starting a record label called Tooth & Nail. Will you give me a deal? Like if I buy six full-page ads, will you give me the seventh one free? I think it was like six and seven or five and six. And I said, Sure, this is the deal I'll give you. And so I I put his ads on consecutive right-hand pages. It was like, Bam, 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 Bam. Seven pages in a row. Uh, In issue number 45 of Heaven's Metal Magazine. I just kind of know this stuff. It's so crazy, dude.
0: Uh, <laughs> I mean, I get it. And, uh, you know, I, I, know, I know track seven off of an album from three records ago, but I still think it's crazy. Cool. That's awesome. Keep going.
1: Yeah. Uh, so that's how he got to start. And, uh, you know, we started covering his bands. Um, we've always kind of been fair trying to treat, uh, you know, mostly bands that were signed, Got better treatment, but we always had an open door to independent mm-hmm. bands, unsigned bands, because those are some of the treasures out there. You discovered, you know, the Crucified before they were signed, or all kinds of crazy bands that go way back. <laughs> um, there's a funny story about a band called Tempest. It was a three piece thrash outfit out of you Ohio. You know that I know. Got named Warren Harris.
0: I know Temp. I had that. I had a cassette of that band,
1: Annihilation of the Wicked. Is what it was called. Do you still have that? cassette? Yeah, I got it burned to a all CD. Right, check too. this out. Old school
0: point. tooth and nail page and '90s uh, Christian music recovery page. There's a gauntlet right there. Let's see you post that up on your page somewhere. Tempest, annihilation of the wicked. Oh my gosh,
1: I had completely forgotten about that band, dude. You want to hear a funny story? Is uh, they were quickly, you know, circulating the underground. And back in the day, kids, before you had. Music sharing. You guys did not invent this stuff. We had a thing called mixtapes. Yeah, baby. And you get your cassette player out there and your vinyl and you're recording these cassette tapes, these mixtapes. You make a mixtape for your girlfriend. This is how I feel about you. And you've got, you know, 60 or 90 minutes of songs devoted to this person. There was an art to and it. And that's how we traded music. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I would put together a mixtape and send it to a friend of mine in the San Francisco Bay Area or Fresno or whatever. And a week later, I'd get a cassette back from him. Maybe two weeks. You have to wait a long time to get your music then. Oh, yeah. But this band Tempest, you know, circulated quickly through the underground. And this record label out of uh, Pennsylvania named Pure Metal, which is a sublabel of Refuge Records. Somebody at the in the executive staff, you know, just some bozo running a record label. Heard about the band, told one of his A&R guys, sign this band. So he goes through the demo tapes that came in. There's a band from Tempest from Indiana, and he, he sends him a contract and signs them. And Jamie Rowe, who went on to sing for Guardian, okay. he was in a band with his brother Mick Rowe, and they were called Tempest, and they got signed because Pure Metal Records thought they were the You're Tempest. Me. <laughs> no, they sent him a contract, sight unseen, no. and signed Tempest, thinking that they had gotten the thrash band.
0: Oh my gosh!
1: And meanwhile, at the same time, that's a huge story. That it's is crazy. huge. And what? But Warren Harris? What happened to those guys? What happened
0: to the good band?
1: I mean, I'm sorry. I don't mean to be offensive. But yeah, that's where I was going to go. The good band. It was fronted by this guy named Warren Harris, which is kind of like a you know this really tall, large African American heck of a bass player, singer, yeah. vocalist. He he was playing bass for Ernest Angsley, Angsley, Angsley. This TV evangelist guy that was kind of obscure, but had his own little market and his flock out there, he played worship bass for his TV show, and he got on this kick that rock music was the devil's tool, oh, and he forsook no. his uh, his abilities and his talent and his calling to be in Tempest. And so, for that f- about four or five, maybe longer period of time, he put his rock and roll, thrash metal chops on the shelf for oh. the Lord. And he didn't want to have anything to do with the scene. Right at the at the peak of their you know popularity, they could have broke and been pretty darn notorious.
0: Yeah, that I remember hearing yeah. that thing going, "This band's actually legit." You know.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I wonder how I would yeah. feel. I haven't heard that probably in thirty years, so I have no.
1: Idea. Yeah, I'll send you some MP3s.
0: <laughs> that would be amazing. Uh, wow! And then all of a sudden, as a result. I don't know if you heard my episode about AllMusic.com, but <laughs> there's a Guardian swatch on there, and uh, nice. My feelings there, whatever. <laughs> um, wow, man! I, have you I, have you heard from that guy ever since then?
1: <sighs> no, I've thought about him lately. I need to reach out to him. I, I heard about him at some point in the last 15 years, out of the blue somewhere, but it's been forever. Wow, oh, man.
0: What a gut punch. <laughs> <laughs> oh and, Well, I'll tell you though, not, not that he really missed a whole lot from pure metal because they sure did jam up a bunch of bands, including my own. Yeah. I think that, I think that label sort of did the, the, uh, the Baltimore Colts thing and folded up in the middle of the night and split like it was definitely, uh, it was a definitely a very shady move. Uh, yeah Man, all the accounting wow dude <laughs> put csi on the case anyway um do it okay so before we go any further i feel like and i i if you lived in southern california this isn't gonna you won't understand why i'm concerned about this but everywhere else in the country i mean I mean, do listen i my band has been celebrated, both of my bands, celebrated on a lot of levels, and I'm very grateful, right? Just now, we just devoted, you know, five minutes to a band that never actually got off the ground beyond a demo tape, right? But there was one band that I still, I, you know, obviously, they've a lot of things have happened since then. But I just always felt like vengeance in in terms of uh, of relevance and and kind of groundbreaking, Position. I still feel like they don't get the props that they deserve. Now, maybe if Dave Lombardo was playing drums, I mean, you know, with the (laughs) uh, if the double bass pedal was faster, maybe somebody would have it have been different. But you know, yeah, (laughs) I love Glenn, so I don't care. You know, I just like I loved those guys so much, man. And I, you know, Roger and I, Roger Martinez and I, were never tight bros, although he did contact me after the crucified broke up wow and wanted me to like he took me to to dinner at this place called the bicycle club in in Burbank California with a couple other guys and he's like bro Warlord Records we're gonna gonna do something completely different bro I wanna start a band we wanna start a new band man and you're gonna front it bro like there was like this whole thing and like I didn't. I didn't like Roger. He just kind of gave me the creeps, and I never. And it's not because he was a Satanist. I still don't think he's a Satanist. I just think he was a showman who, you know, <laughs> the show ended. But those other dudes, like Roger Martin and 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 Doug Thiem, Glenn, Larry, like those guys, were so hugely influential on so many bands. And I just, you know, I know they were in Die Happy and all that stuff. I just. I don't know that, um, I feel like the street cred of that band should be a little bit higher. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, and you know, they had some of the same problems we did. Just some really weird timing, some really bad artistic decisions. We both came out with records at the same time with a pseudo split image on the cover. And both (laughs) of them in their own way looked sort of ridiculous. You know, it's just, yeah, but, um, that's the early days of, you know, you, you got your growing pains. But, man, I remember seeing those guys um, at at Biker James's church. Um, these dudes get on stage, and they straight up looked legit. Like, all I had seen up until that point from Christian people were bands like... Huh. <laughs> well, there was this band we played with called Spectra. Spectra! And like we used to watch, we had to play a show with them and they had like neon <laughs> everything. And uh, there was like a PVC pipe cage around the drums <laughs> with feathers and stuffing. Like that's what I had known so far of Christian wow. quote unquote metal, right? So we we get down to, to uh, Out of Step Ministries at the Set Free Church in Anaheim and these full-on Dirty Hessians get up on stage and just shred the place. And I mean, we're used to playing with bands that have practiced (laughs) like five times or that corny, you know, I have makeup on and a mustache look like it just, you know, that's what we were used to going up against. Right. So we get on stage and these dudes come out and, and, you know, Larry looks like he just rolled out from underneath somebody's car. Yeah. You know, Roger literally looked like a lion. And then, like, Roger Martin and Doug, uh, seriously, like, you could not, you couldn't capture a better image of, like, you know, late 80s, non-commercial metal dudes, you know what I mean? Who, just yeah. I don't know. I'm like, who is this band? And they all have their own T-shirt on, you know, and all their shirts <laughs> say Vengeance across the front. I'm like, what is going on? You know, everybody wore their own shirts at that time, but... That was different. And they'd get on stage. And I remember hearing the song White Throne for the first time ever. And Roger Martin was seeing the backup vocals. And there's just this inflection in his voice. And I, I turn and look to Greg, you know, the guitar player, Crucified. I'm like, dude, these guys are freaking they're good. You know, we must have played 100 shows with that band and it's just strange to to have them just completely have dropped off the face of the earth. And I don't know. I just I feel like if anybody I've talked to on this show is going to grasp what I'm getting at. It's got to be you, you know. I mean, come on, man. Yeah. I I just I don't know. I they were just kind of forgotten on the blip and that's too bad because there were some pretty cool pretty some pretty cool ideas at
1: that time. That's uh when you say the word legit, that really kind of encompasses everything because this was a band you didn't have to be embarrassed to share with the, this that non-believer metal head at your school
0: yeah man yeah you know i i mean when i first saw I, I i knew nothing about metal and greg showed me this metallica record you know he's oh you gotta check this band metallica out now from a person who doesn't listen to metal the name metallica is hilarious <laughs> Right now, it's synonymous with like an iconic band, but yeah, not in not in nineteen you know eighty nine or whatever. Or whenever Ride the Lightning came out, or, or Master of Puppets, more importantly, like. Yeah, that was still not a common they were not a common household band. They were so completely out of left field. And, and then I, I look at the back cover and I'm like, which one's the singer? Like, you know, it it had always been so obvious in the past. Um, but yeah, so so Vengeance to come out to me, there was just like this connection because they weren't like this pretty, you know, primping, weird Strangely, ambiguously, straight or gay—no one knows. Kind of vibe. They were just <laughs> like these dudes shredding, you know. The kids at the show immediately got it. You know what I mean? Like that was like—I don't know. I thought that was really important for that time. Anyway, sorry. I just did a—I just did a diatribe on on Vengeance Rising. Yeah,
1: they had it all. I think uh, the reason why they don't get their fair shake. Publicly is probably because of Roger and his rantings and yeah,
0: yeah, all that
1: stuff. Because people associate the band with that a little bit, and that it's it's a shame that we uh, we let something like that cloud the art their artistic output. Yeah, because you're you're supposed to judge an artist by his uh, work over time, right?
0: No, you should Those judge first two
1: albums. You should especially. judge them.
0: Uh, you should judge the artist by the people that they're associated with, and then shove them in a bin at the back of the store. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I totally agree. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so we've gotten way off topic as I always do, but let's let's get back to let's get back to, to uh, the magazine. So now we we know you've seen this. The tooth and nail thing has risen and come in and been like kind of taken over. I mean, come on, they took over. Uh-huh. You know, uh, yeah, five minute walk was there, and there were a couple of these like peripheral labels that were legit, and they they really worked hard. But do tooth and nail washed over the earth, and it was there was no coming back from that. Did you notice a, a, any kind of a change in the culture of uh, our, you know, of of Christian people and playing music and all of that? I mean,
1: okay, sure, uh, but yeah, Tooth and Nail Records was quickly became our biggest advertiser. You know, from the from the moment they began, they advertised in the pages of HM magazine. Not an issue went by that they didn't have an ad. Classically, they were doing four full- page color ads in each issue. Wow man. which was awesome for us and uh, and they never really demanded they were great to work with they, they never really demanded something that wasn't deserving. Everything they got in the pages of h m was was well deserved because their the quality of their art by and large was uh was good and like I think the Tom Festival is a great snapshot of the the Christian culture at that time. You had, uh, musical styles, you had, you know, lo-fi, uh, folk music, acoustic based music that was as much of a rage as, you know, four, four time punk rock snare drum hitting fast music and, and metal. So, and we were embracing all of that. We were, you know, reviewing albums and doing articles on Danielson family, uh, five minute walk type bands and whatnot, uh. So yeah, the the floodgates were wide open as far as you know, image, sound, and the culture, and it was kind of. Uh, I think one of the things people may not give a lot of credence to is the really good byproducts of the punk rock revolution was stripping away the facade, stripping away the the stage performance or the stage persona, um, and you know, fake went out the door. Fake got its ass kicked and and, and showed the door. <laughs> And authenticity, even though, even though authenticity was fake all of its own, there was, there was punk rock that you could buy at Hot Topic and you could, you could become punk rock with a, with a few dollars. But that aside, one of the great benefits of it was this is who I am, this is who you are, be who you are, be real, uh, don't put on a show, don't fake me out. Um, so that kind of spread through the culture. Uh, you could see it in the, in the clothes people wore. They didn't really dress up for shows anymore. They didn't try to be something they weren't for the most part, Um, and stylistically, you know, and people wore the same clothes they wore that day as they do on stage. So that was kind of a breath of fresh air, and that was kind of part of the culture that I noticed and I liked and I embraced, you know, the do-it-yourself phenomenon, which was huge in our scene anyway. People were always sending us cassette tapes through the mail. (laughs) Uh, CDs started becoming in vogue then. You could could get a CD burner, which was still kind of new technology, but... You could get um, anyway, so you know the floodgates were opened in a sense, uh, and this was like pre-internet, really. I mean, the, you had the internet, the internet for email, and you, there there was some surfing you did on the web in 1995, but not every single advertisement had a URL at the bottom. Right, right. Like like slowly happened over time. Those are just some of the changes I mentioned. Yeah.
0: Did you notice a change in in the fan base at all? Like in their in. I don't know an, any kind of a different attitude or a sea change of I don't know I hate to use the word vibe but I can't really think of anything else but that you know like put it this way compare like uh, cornerstone pre tooth and nail to cornerstone height of tooth and nail and I to me there's just it's a completely different vibe in some ways better in some ways you know not better but mm-hmm. um, I don't know I just always wonder how how everyone saw that kind of happening because, you know, we all kind of experienced it in our own ways. Yeah. I, w- I was just talking about, like, you know, the other day uh, when, when, uh, <laughs> what the heck was that guy's name? Peter King. You remember that guy, Peter oh, yeah. King? and Yeah.
1: Dakota, Motor, Dakota Company.
0: Motor Company and all that and sort of like the end of, of the crucified and the mortal era and, and you know, like that kind of Early '90s, um, Tooth and Nail hasn't come on the scene yet. I mean, you go to to the festival and it would just be every different kind of style of music and and all over the place. Charlie Peacock and you know Adam Again and whatever. And not necessarily all stuff that I loved, but some of it I. I really enjoyed and kind of was a nice little change up right you know Mm -hmm. you fast forward 10 years and um really there is very little diversity in the style of music you know there was just a lot of hardcore a lot of ska a lot of straight up indie you know but i just didn't see the same diversity that i had seen before and you know maybe that was just because uh, people got tired of playing that music i don't know but uh, i don't did you did you feel that at all or for you it was just like hey man it is what it is, you know, the music is there.
1: Yeah, I was right in the thick of it and I can't say that I've articulated how to describe what I saw when I was going through it, but diversity was a huge part of it. Mm-hmm. It was just it was very diverse um and it was comfortable. You didn't have to be um like anybody else. No, man. So, differ- differences were appreciated, which is a beautiful thing. I mean, dude, I met
0: my buddy, uh, Renee Vasquez, Peace 586. I met him at Cornerstone. We hung out the whole time. You know, I went to his shows. Like, it, it was, to me, it was just it was a little freer. I don't know. I feel like it was, there wasn't as much of a scene, per se, as there sort of became later on. Although, I will say, I mean, at the very beginning, man, uh, it was amazing. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you, you, all those bands. Everyone was so excited about this sort of thing happening, and then you, you, uh, you know, you 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 get into it, and and um and suddenly everybody has a shot. I don't know. I thought, I thought it was uh, there was definitely a couple years there where you where you thought we were all onto something something kind of amazing. But
1: anyway, yeah, it was a phenomenon for sure, and it's kind of cool that it happened in the realm of Christianity.
0: Yeah, I think, I think that's legitimately a, a, a nice little claim, <laughs> uh-huh. you know. So okay, we mentioned earlier. Um, you know, it seems like a, a, a constant theme here. This constant theme of change. You know, obviously in in the early aughts, you know, the music industry changed, and um, and everything did. You know, music, journalism, uh, literature, everything changed, and uh, I'm sure that you felt that right at the roots, you know, what was that like? I mean, do you remember that, that time frame? the early aughts mm-hmm. or the late aughts, like t- 2002, 2005 in there, really the world is kind of recovering from nine yeah. 11 and a lot, you know, the, the Napster thing is suddenly sort of rising up and I don't know, music is, is just in, in a, in a major state of flux before it had, had full on switched over. I mean.
1: Yeah. We went through a major change at that time. Around 2000 and 2001, I had hired a managing editor named Jason Dodd, who was from the Pacific Northwest. And he helped rekindle my love for journalism and the, and the, and the written word and helped me take my music journalism and my rock and metal journalism to a more serious level. And so that was kind of a, a cool renaissance for HM Magazine. Then his replacement, instead of replacing him with another managing editor, I replaced him with an art director slash managing editor. And I hired this huge visual graphic design talent named David Allen. And he came in. The first thing he did was he redesigned the magazine. But he also gave us a new brand. So we had that that very British, very UK-looking, big red swash. Yeah, the layout and all that. Block letters. Yeah. I remember that. The layout got better. He gave me a great template. So once he left... I was like I was like Barry Switzer, <laughs> and I, I could win a Super Bowl by just not screwing up what Jimmy Johnson has left sure. behind.
0: And of course, you have to get a Cowboys <laughs> reference in there, which I I, uh, I have no problem
1: with whatsoever. Thank you very much. So that was a good uh, a good time period of change for us, and I think we were doing pretty well at adapting to you know the change that were going on. We were you know one thing we've kind of always been, I think, through most of the thirty years of HM Magazine is one of the people. And so I was just, you know, into the digital age like everyone else and was experiencing life with my readers. And hopefully the writing reflected that and people felt that. Mm -hmm. Uh, We went through some interesting changes around that time where we had some outs with a Christian uh, distributor called Lifeway. Somebody came into a Lifeway Christian bookstore, which used to be called the Baptist Christian bookstore, but they were smart enough to take the word Baptist out to appeal to more Christians. Mm-hmm. Somebody came in there and they showed them an ad for As L.A. Dying, Metal Blade Records, Metalblade.com. Have you been to this website, Metalblade.com? You know, this is not representing Christianity. So the Lifeway, which represented 500 copies of HM Magazine throughout their stores across the nation, which isn't a lot. They decided, that's it, Doug. We've had enough with you. We didn't like the uh, illustration you had of the impaled person. In 2004, I did an article called The Ugly Truth Behind Christian Rock. And I took 19 years of my experience and knowledge and dumped it into that seven-page article, which pretty much was just, there's a small window of time for a Christian musician to do something. It's from age like 15 to 22, and then it's it's over. You need to get a real job unless you have blown up by that time. Uh Uh-huh that was kind of the gist of the article but we had this impaled guy like his torso was cut off and severed and a giant pole was holding him up and Lifeway hated that boycotted that issue did not take you know returned all 500 copies of that a few months later you know this issue with a metal blade ad came and, and they uh, they they stopped doing business with us and they wouldn't allow me or my distributor which was Spring Arbor which had become uh, Ingram Periodicals They wouldn't let us talk to them about why Hmm. they were like we've made up our mind we don't want to hear you talk and they told ingram if you bring this up we will dissolve our business dealings with you for everything wow you know ingram was a one-stop they sold bibles and trinkets and music and choir robes and music everything so they had to basically say okay doug we're not going to fight this battle for you the same day within two hours of getting that phone call I got an email from a, a secular distributor that said we'd like to start carrying HM. Here's our first purchase order for 500 copies. <laughs> I thought, well, thank you, Lord. It seems like an, you know closed door, open window kind of thing. So that that was a funny change that happened at that time. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I think you know that's something that we've we've covered on a few of these shows. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, I didn't really think think about it from your point of view, but um, man, that. That that visibility that people fight for to be recognized outside of the Christian community, you know, was always such a challenge, and I can imagine be it being somewhat similar for you. You know, was that feeling a little liberating too? Like I don't really
1: need to worry uh, quite so much. Well, there's a there's I've definitely felt comf- comfortable and confident throughout all of my time with HM, but I definitely felt a growing threat as well as a This is an answer to prayer. I'm so thankful. You know, it's funny, going back to 1985, four magazines started that year. Heaven's Metal, Metal Edge, Spin, and Alternative Press. Mm. So it was kind of cool to be in that same company. But when Alternative Press embraced Tooth & Nail Records, which was like an answer to prayer because our music was being taken seriously Mm -hmm. by the legitimate media and press. It was great. It was awesome. But they not only embraced Tooth & Nail, and Tooth & Nail became a major advertiser with them. But pretty soon I could see the writing on the wall that if that became everything that I wanted it to be as a fan, it was going to be to the detriment of my own magazine. Because my own own vehicle, you know, we uh, we kind of took the approach of a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. So we fed the kids and the fans what they wanted to hear, but we also tried to interject intelligence and challenges to our editorials. Like, you know, let's take this art – out into the world. Let's let's let our art be judged for its quality, not for its message. So we kind of pushed that and tried to help the whole scene grow. But in essence, we kind of helped grow ourselves out of a job because in (laughs) in some ways we got the media attention in the mainstream we always wanted. But because HM was so uh, integrated into the Christian industry, I don't think we were, you know, set up to survive a wholesale shift where You know, a lot of that advertising money went from HM to Alternative Press. Mm. So that's kind of an interesting challenge that I had to face. But yeah, and that whole phenomenon was was kind of cool. And and Christians in a band and Christian rock versus art made by Christians, that was kind of a silly debate, but it's also, also an intelligent argument. I just think it's just silly that anybody would... Have a problem with it, right, I think that's what's silly about the whole thing um that that came at a at a you know something we've always wanted like people like you and me we we dreamed about days like that, and now we've seen it yeah, we've seen Christians have their art accepted for the the quality of the art alone and been embraced by and large. A lot of bands have seen that happen, so sure. in one way, that was kind of the uh, you know. Set HM back a little bit, I guess.
0: Well, or maybe in a one way, uh, in, an, in in another way, you sort of helped that happen. Which, you know, on behalf of myself and uh, and anyone else who agrees, thank you. Because as I mentioned earlier on the show, man, I mean, you're just trying to get your stuff out there, and you want people to see it and hear it, or or and and tell you if it's good. You know, respond if it's good. And uh, listen, it's easy when you're the only store in town. Everybody's got a gripe, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, and I've had my gripes with HM. Clearly, as I felt <laughs> entitled to take you behind the woodshed at one of my shows. <laughs> but um, but you know that's the convenience of of actually having someone to bitch about. Because if there's no one, then you're just there's no one to complain to at all, except this, you know, ambiguous powers that be or whatever, or this nebulous forces of, you know, quenching. But, you know, with you guys being around as long as you were, and of course, you know, everybody's got their criticisms or whatever. The fact is, is that you were a vehicle for a lot of people to, to be heard and to be noticed. And uh, I think that's it's definitely a, rem- uh, a worth worth noting and and uh, appreciating,
1: you know. Thank you.
0: And there you have it, ladies and gents. My old friend Doug Van Pelt. Thanks to Doug. Thanks to Doug for uh, for caring about the bands. Um, and caring about the fans enough to do what you did for all those years and uh, it is my sincere hope that one day soon you will, you will fully realize how much that meant uh to me to the Stavesacre guys the crucified guys and and really hundreds and maybe even thousands of other bands seriously how many bands did you see come through there I just I want to say thank you, and I and I think a lot of other people, especially now as we've grown a little bit and, and saw what it meant. I, I'm sure that I speak for for many many more and saying thank you for everything you did for all those years. And uh, as a Raider fan, I say to you, uh, as gently as possible, how about them Cowboys? Ooh. Okay, okay. Back to it. If you'd like to reach out to Doug, uh, maybe jump in on one of his auctions or something, or just say hello, you can find him on uh, Twitter at, at D as in David O O G L A R. At Douglar on Twitter. Or just uh, hit him up on Facebook. He's, he's on there. Won't be hard to find. Um, as always, this show was produced by Billy Power of UrbanAchievershow.com. Billy's been cleaning up uh, the I Never Was site. And making it all purdy. Uh, some good stuff coming down very, very soon. Uh, and as always, we got still a little bit of time for anyone who wants to send in a letter, send in uh, two hundred words or less. The the show, the the magazine, the book, the uh, the film, the record that changed your life. Man, I got some good stuff on here. There's gonna be some good stuff for that show. Okay. Uh, so yeah, you write that to the own at ineverwas.com. Send me your email. I will answer everybody. I have tried to answer everybody. If I haven't answered you yet, it's because I just haven't gotten to your day. Okay, this episode of Never Was can be found at ineverwas.com or on iTunes. Also, you can uh, tweet us at uh, the Never Was Podcast on Twitter. There's a Facebook page now for the Never Was Podcast as well. Um, And by all means, please do. We'd like to hear from you. And don't forget to send those emails. Last but not least, Tanzania. What's happening? Six times. Six times we've hung out. Just want you to know, I see you. I see you. Rainbow out.